Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. The first podcast of the offseason. As sad as I am to report to all of you. Sam already knew that. You knew that I right thing. I did. I did. You are not breaking any news to me about the status of, of the Major League Baseball season. Uh, it's over. Major League Baseball season is over. Your 2020 World Series champions, the Los Angeles Dodgers, who have won the World Series now in, I believe, if I read this correctly yesterday, uh, the two shortest seasons in Major League history. 1988, strike-shortened year. In 2020, a pandemic-shortened year. Last two times the Dodgers have won the World Series. They've come on some uh, some crazy circumstances. Obviously, this one way crazier than anything else. But uh, congratulations to the Los Angeles Dodgers, who have been chasing and have been so close uh, for the last what feels like decade, but especially the last four years. And uh, finally... That fan base for the first time since the uh, late Reagan years is celebrating a World Series title just a few weeks after celebrating uh, an NBA title, which if you would have told somebody at the beginning of the year, oh, the the Lakers are going to win the NBA Finals, then a couple weeks later the Dodgers are going to win the World Series, that would have been very confusing. Yes, yes, it would have been. Your question might have been, like, why'd they move up the World Series? Right, exactly. Why is the World Series in June? Um, But uh, big congratulations. We're going to talk World Series stuff uh, as the show gets rolling along today. We've got uh, a lot coming up. Sam was kind enough to handle two segments to follow this. Uh, I was indisposed today. Did not get a chance to get in on our our interview segment, but we'll talk about that coming up here in a little bit. Uh, Before we get into any of it, though, this is... If you are uh, hearing us on Thursday or Friday or Saturday or whenever over the weekend, this is coming down to the wire for your last chance to vote in the 2020 election. And uh, we, of course, implore you to do so. Exercise your civil duty. Uh, If you're in a state where you uh, would ordinarily be mailing your ballot. Postal Service now telling people that uh, they're running very slow on uh, on moving things around. So you've run out of time to mail your ballot. So you can locate drop boxes, do that kind of stuff uh, on states, various websites, uh, secretaries of state uh, or voting departments, whatever it is. Locate your ballot box drop area 
or you can go vote in person. You can do uh, whatever you'd like, depending on your voting situation in your state. But go vote. Um, it's an important thing. And uh, even if you're somebody who's young and listening to this and thinking like, well, what difference is my vote going to make? Uh, it really does. And you know what else? You feel good when you do it. There's a good feeling of accomplishment when you finish off a ballot and you drop it off in a box or you you know go to a, a polling place and vote, whatever it is. Uh, but but just do it. Just do it. Yeah, I mean, here in here in Brooklyn, I voted early in person. Um, you know, every state's going to be different. Tyler, I know Colorado is a very mail-in ballot heavy state, which is yep. great, especially right now. Um, some of you might have requested your ballots to be delivered to you, and you may have already sent them back, or, or as Tyler said, dropped them off in a in a ballot box or brought them to your local board of elections, and that that's great. If it's still sitting on your counter, get that done. Get it done now. Uh, put us on pause. We'll still be here. It's okay. Yeah. It doesn't. It really doesn't take that long to actually fill out the ballot. But uh, there's nothing more satisfying that I've done this year, and it's been a very crazy year. Uh, but there's nothing more satisfying I've done than dropping my ballot into the Scantron here in Brooklyn, and it's saying your vote has been counted. Oh, that's cool. It's a very satisfying feeling. I know. Yeah, it's gotta be. At least here in New York and other places as well, Massachusetts, where my parents are voting. Um, they have like a vote tracker. So if you have voted by mail, yeah. you can find out That's a where your ballot thing. is. It reminds me a little bit of the Domino's tracker, uh, but in the most <laughs> democratic way. Uh, I love it so much that, that they actually tell you the post office has your ballot. It's been delivered. It's been counted. That's exactly how democracy should work. And democracy should work as a participation sport. We are right. Uh, you know, we, we are very sports based here. We are very results based here as well. Uh, and, you know, it might feel like there's two teams here, but there is one country. And, and the way we make that country better is actually having your voice heard. We saw this happen in 2016. Um, the election, the, the popular vote was decided by 3 million votes and that person ended up losing. Uh, the vote was actually really decided by a couple thousand in maybe three states. Uh, so if you live in a swing state, it's really important to vote. If you don't live in a swing state here in New York, my vote still counted because there is the Working Families Party, um, which was under threat of going away. Uh, and even if you know there weren't many options for me to vote, still voting one way allows that party to still exist. Tyler, I know Colorado has a ton of propositions, which I'm actually very jealous of. Yeah. Talking about. Yeah. Very lengthy, very lengthy ballot this year. Uh, yeah. yeah, in addition to a bunch of local stuff in Denver and state stuff, we also had a bunch of judges, the kinds of things that you just like, I don't know how to vote for all this stuff. But there are, for example, we've got a, a local news organization here called Denverite, um, which is now uh, owned by Colorado Public Radio. And they did a, a tremendous voter guide, which included stuff about all the judges and all the propositions and all the amendments and all that type of stuff. Um, it's so easy to be informed um, but make sure that you are being informed by trusted outlets, uh, such as, uh, you know, reputable local news sources like that, like a public radio station or a, a journalistic outlet that is of, uh, of some repute. Um, but there are a lot of good ways to get yourself the knowledge base that you need in order to vote, uh, in a way that aligns with your values. And, uh, we just really encourage you to, to do it. Like Sam said, it should be a, a participatory thing and not a spectator thing. And, uh, it's really important. So with all that being said, let us know if you uh, if you if you voted because you heard on the show that you know you need to get it done and you had kind of forgotten. Let us know podcast uh, at milb.com and that's the email address, right? 
It is, yes. Podcast at MILB.com. <laughs> I've not said that email address in a while, I guess. I kind of forgot. Um, and uh, and yeah, let us know because it's, uh, it is really kind of fun. I mean, we have sort of the same thing, a ballot tracker, but I actually got um, email notifications when I think I dropped my ballot off on, let's say, a Wednesday. And on Thursday, got an email that it had been uh, accepted at the elections division. And then on Friday, got an email that said it had been counted. And that's pretty cool. Like that, you really feel like, oh, there are systems that work. That's kind of neat. So just go do it. And uh, with that, we'll talk some baseball for the rest of the show. Uh, The 2020 World Series is in the books. And in six games, the Los Angeles Dodgers do have that uh, World Series title that snaps a 30-plus year drought. And uh, Sam, this was a, a series that really games one through three, not a lot of twists and turns. And then game four had enough turns for an entire World Series. And uh, now that this thing is wrapped up, the Dodgers obviously uh, taking advantage of what has become a very suspect decision uh, over the last now nearly 24 hours from Kevin Cash with the Tampa Bay Rays taking out uh, one of our best friends of MILB.com, Blake Snell. Uh, in a spot where it seemed like, why would you ever lift this guy from a game? And Kevin Cash said, hold up, let me do something. Um, That changed the dynamic of game six when the Rays were leading one nothing. Dodgers rally, take the lead two to one in that inning. They grab a 3-1 lead uh, late, thanks to Mookie Betts with his final homer on his final hit of the postseason. Uh, But this series... You know, it kind of felt for a while as though the Rays being this plucky underdog, they were going to somehow figure out that they could push it to seven. It was a series that sort of felt like it deserved seven games. But I don't think that it ever really felt like there was any other logical outcome other than, well, the Dodgers are obviously the much better team and they're going to win this. Yeah, I mean, they they were – I don't want to say deeper because one of the, th- the strengths about the Rays was their depth and just how – there wasn't a, an obvious place where they really tailed off. Um, they just kept coming at you with, with different things other than the offense, the offense really struggled in this series, but the, the Dodgers had the high peaks. They had Clayton Kershaw, which hopefully we never have to hear again about him not coming through in the postseason. He was an MVP candidate in this world series. They get, went out and got Mookie Betts, not breaking any news there um, might've been the best player overall player in these playoffs, I might've given him my world series MVP vote, to be honest with you, because of the things he did on defense and base running uh, beyond just getting us all tacos. Um, but he became a real leader for that team. It, Corey Seager was playing out of his mind. Cody Bellinger is a former MVP. Yada, 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 yada. Uh, the Dodgers were just as deep and as strong as any team is going to be in major league baseball. And Uh, You talked about it at the beginning of the show, Tyler, about how they continually have tried to get here. They fell to the Astros in the, in the world series. They, they fell to the Red Sox in the world series. They fell to the nationals last year's playoffs, the eventual world series champions. Um, You know, they, they kept trying to get close and you knew that they were going to break through at a certain point. And it, to, to one point, it almost doesn't feel sad. um, But the fact that this came in a 60 game season, there are going to be people who are going to try to attach an asterisk to that. I'd still think if this was a 162 game season, the Dodgers would have been the strongest. Um, we would have seen maybe a Josiah Gray. We would have seen more at bats out of Kiebert Ruiz. We would have seen more at bats certainly out of Gavin Lux uh, and maybe even Edwin Rios. The, that depth would have come through in other ways. And the Dodgers could have been a 105 win team for all we know. Um, but they, they dominated in what could have, would have, what could have been a really strange season. And then they kept continued that dominance through the postseason, including coming back 
uh, in the NLCS and then not really steamrolling over the Rays, but just going punch for punch, uh, taking a game like that game four, which could have been demoralizing and crushing and coming back and winning the series in six. Uh, it was really, really impressive stuff. And um, as you're going to hear here, you know, coming up in my interview with, with Travis Barbary, um, who was supposed to be the Oklahoma city manager this year and ended up coaching at the alternate site at USC. Uh, the, the Dodgers have been really set up for this for a while. They feel like they're continually set up to do this for multiple years. Signing Mookie Betts to an extension is a big reason beyond that, but Clayton Kershaw is locked up for a while. They still have Corey Seager for another year. Uh, Cody Bellinger is not going to be a free agent until 2024. Um, and then the, the other pieces that I already mentioned that are going to keep coming through that system. Uh, the Dodgers aren't going anywhere. And for them to finally get that crowning achievement really feels special. It honestly reminds me a little bit of the Brooklyn Dodgers at, at the middle of the last century, um, reading up on those teams and how they continually got back to the World Series, got back to the World Series, and Jackie Robinson only ended up winning one. Uh, but they got that one, and that one is important, and that means a lot to the city, and that means a lot to that organization. And it shows that, hey, if you're willing to pour resources into the game, if you're w willing to – uh, strategize certain ways and be flexible both with your money and the way you, you look at, at the game and the way you're trying to fit, not necessarily a formula, but be flexible with how you use your pitchers and how you use your best hitters and how you use your defense. Uh, good things can happen. And that's what the Dodgers proved this year. We, we don't have to take some crazy thing out of this. It was a team with a large payroll who was very good at developing, who won the World Series. That's going to be good any year. Yeah, and I think it even there is a certain justice in a team that does have a large payroll, does devote so many resources to its international scouting department, its department, its amateur scouting department, uh, its analytics, its player development side, uh, and yes, does spend money to lock up players like Mookie Betts, a player that it acquired um, for really a pretty reasonable sum of money in the trade uh, or of, of talent, I should say. Uh, I mean, when you look back at that trade, you kind of think like the Dodgers got Mookie Betts out of that deal. They got one of the best players on the planet in that deal. But then they locked him up for 13 years, and that's uh, a pretty big step as well uh, in that equation. But there is something just about a franchise that does all of those things in the pursuit of a World Series title getting to win that World Series title. This isn't the the early 2000s Yankees or Red Sox or that conversation where it's just who is the biggest free agent this year? Can we go out and acquire that person over the offseason, throw a boatload of money at him? Uh, the Dodgers, there was a tweet today, and I wish I remembered who posted it because they deserve the credit, but every single game started in the postseason this year was started by a pitcher who had spent his entire professional career in the Dodgers organization. So this is not one of those teams from 20 years ago that people got mad about, oh, they bought a championship. This really isn't that with the Dodgers. They build themselves very differently. Um, the other thing that's kind of funny is how many people were trying to dunk on the Rays for, oh, look at the analytics. They failed because Kevin Cash took Blake Snell out. The Dodgers are probably the most analytically inclined franchise in baseball. Just because they spend a lot of money uh, and it's not their only form of trying to figure out how to be competitive does not mean that they are not analytically minded. So keep that in mind with your hot takes about Blake Snell being taken out of that game. Um, but this is a fascinating series. We would be remiss if we did not point out uh, game four. 
in which Brett Phillips, one of our favorite guys from MILB.com, uh, lit up the sports world for a night with one of the wackiest walk-off plays in the history of baseball uh, and certainly in the history of the World Series. Randy Rosarena, who was the breakout star of the playoffs, scoring the craziest run to win a World Series game. One of my favorite images, I mean, obviously everybody's favorite image, I think, from that game if not from the world series in total is brett phillips running around with his arms outstretched like an airplane in the outfield uh and just that pure emotion i equally loved randy rosarena laying on home plate and slapping it repeatedly with his hand with that giant smile across his face like that was a moment not to extrapolate too much from a sports moment but it felt good to feel good about something. You know what I mean? In 2020, and it was the same watching Clayton Kershaw burst out of the the bullpen and throw his arms up in the air and that emotional release. Um, Sports are that distraction in life. uh, And there is so much, obviously, to still be debated about whether or not we deserve sports in a year like this. But man, it felt good to have a couple of moments where it just, you were able to lock into something that was happy. Yeah, I mean, Brett Phillips really did say it best. Uh, Baseball is fun. Yeah. And that, that was entirely the way we know Brett Phillips. I mean, you and I were texting after the game, during yeah. the game. During the game. Knowing Brett Phillips was coming up and just being like, I am so nervous about what this could – because he he was left off the LCS roster. They brought right. him back on because there were going to be off days. They dropped a pitcher to let Brett Phillips be, be on there. He even said he's the last man on the bench. He's there basically for pinch yeah. running. And he said he ability. figured that Kevin Cash looked at him and went, oh, no. <laughs> he realized <laughs> that he had to pinch hit somebody. Yeah, so, like, he, he comes – he was already in the game as a defensive replacement. I mean, Brett Phillips has a great arm. If you ever get a chance to watch him yeah. play defense, it, it is special. But, um, you know, somebody who's played in the Astros organization and the Royals organization and been traded to the Brewers organization as well, and then, now he's with the Rays when he was moved basically because he had no options remaining – and he's a Florida guy as well. Didn't grow up that far from St. Pete, um, at, going to Seminole High School and uh, getting you know your first World Series at bat and just thinking like, you you do that in the backyard and you hit a home run, right? You hit a walk off home run. You go around the bases. You do, you do the airplane and you go crazy. But he didn't try to do that. What he just tried to do, especially after getting two calls, uh, I don't remember who the home plate umpire was that night, but the, the two strikes called against him were like just off the plate. They yeah. weren't guaranteed strikes. That's really tough to take against Kenley Jansen, who yeah. at one point, I know he's had his ups and downs this year, but at one point was the best closer in baseball, arguably. Uh, and to, to get two strikes against that and then just make contact, put it up the middle, Chris Taylor boots it, throws it in, Will Smith boots it, Randy Arizarena, like you said, Tyler, loses it coming down the third baseline and then pulls off one of the most athletic plays of this world series and that he falls, but immediately gets up and starts moving again and doesn't force the error, but like it could have been, he would have been dead to rights on the base pass. We're going to extra innings Instead, he's right back up. And when it gets past Will Smith, he's in there touching home plate, slapping it a bunch of times, just making sure everybody knows he scored the game winning run. It, it was so much fun. It's indicative of what this race team is. Um, as we say, t- Brett Phillips was probably the 28th man on the roster. Usually there are not 28 men on a ma- on a postseason roster. 
for him to come through that way again, first world series at bat and knowing what we know about Brett Phillips, just somebody who thoroughly enjoys the game of baseball, tries to have as much fun with it as he can. When he was left off the LCS roster, he called himself like the inspirational coach. I think um, yeah. holding up signs for his teammates, like see ball, hit ball, ran, holding up. What was it? Rakes. Randy uh, rakes all night day year. Yeah. Just fun stuff like that. It, like he keeps things loose and at a time when things are so analytically inclined and I have nothing against that whatsoever. I'm not trying to get on a high horse, but having somebody who's just being like, listen, you are a good baseball player. The reason why you are in the world series is because you are good at what you do. Trust that I'm here for you. I support you. Uh, and I shared your success was really, really neat. And to see him get his own success was really, really cool too. So as much as, this is a sport. There is a winner at the end. There is a loser at the end. The Dodgers won. The Rays lost. This was a really fun World Series, all in all. Um, and something I think both fans of both organizations can take something away from. Speaking of that, these organizations we talked last week, very well positioned to move forward from here. We know how much talent is in that Dodger system. The Rays, the same, uh, despite what the one all caps yelling reply to your tweet said, uh, which said that the Rays don't even have a top 15 system in minor league baseball. Um, sometimes don't tweet. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> these two organizations, uh, probably the, the top two, if not two of the top three or four systems uh, in all of baseball by all accounts, Right now, there are a lot more questions about what the Dodgers will look like in 2021 than what the Rays will look like in 2021. There's not much changing on that Rays roster as it looks right now. The Dodgers, uh, you know, Justin Turner will be a free agent after this season. And uh, that is a, a topic that now comes with a whole different conversation. And I feel like it is probably something that we should touch on uh, before we talk about where these teams go from here. Um, it was certainly pretty jarring to see Justin Turner on the field after that. I actually was doing the write-up of our final Randy Rosarena story, which um, kind of meandering here, but shout out to MILB.com's Joe Bloss, who came up with the tweet of the postseason uh, <laughs> said uh, on Twitter last week, quote, there's this neat new feature on MILB.com where every time you refresh the homepage, another story about Randy Rosarena appears, which is pretty true. Um, so I was writing one up yesterday and had the TV on mute, totally missed Kevin Burkhart saying that Justin Turner had tested positive for COVID-19, and that was the reason why he had been pulled. Then all of a sudden, I see a tweet from Alana Rizzo, the Dodgers sideline reporter, saying that she was heartbroken for Justin Turner, but in the tweet were pictures of Justin Turner celebrating on the field with the World Series trophy, so I didn't really get the sentiment of being heartbroken for him. Um, Major League Baseball came out with a statement today about that whole situation that was there was so much going on last night in that postseason situation I got done with my work shift at midnight I don't think I fell asleep until about 1 30. yeah yeah uh, I mean that's 1 30 your time like I probably right. didn't fall asleep till 3 30 my time yeah either. um yeah what what happened last night after the game and details are still coming out MLB put out a statement today that basically said um you know that Justin Turner had a test that was inconclusive uh, the day before the World Series. They found out about that during the game. They tested the one that was the day of. So on Tuesday, uh, they tested that. That came back positive. They told 
the Dodgers, he had to be pulled off the field. He was pulled off the field and put into some sort of isolation. Um, but then when MLB security, according to the statement, told him he had to stay in isolation, he disagreed and somehow, and this is somehow it's doing a lot of work here. I understand that somehow got to the field, was able to take pictures, was able to hold the trophy, be with his teammates, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a really rough look um, for Justin Turner, for the Dodgers, for baseball as a whole, really, uh, to have something like that happen. We're going to see what details come out, like who allowed him to get out there? Did he sneak out there by himself? Um, why wasn't he put right back into isolation? It's really tough because I know you at home, many of you at home at the very least, have been doing your best to make sure that this pandemic is somewhat contained. And right now we're going through it as rough as we ever did in the spring, as rough as we ever did in the middle of the summer. The numbers are jumping all across the country and baseball to its credit, don't get me wrong, did a very good job during these playoffs. Zero positive tests until Justin Turner. The bubbles were working and I don't know how he got it. I'm not here to judge that. Um, but once you know you are positive, you need to stay away from other people or else risk spreading it to, to, you know, other people and having them spread it to other people as well. Kind of how viruses work. Exactly. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I've heard a lot of them speak. I understand that much. Um, and when Dave Roberts is a cancer survivor and is right there, it's just, it's really tough. It's, it's irresponsible to do that. Um, you know, we're going to see what's, what's going to come. MLB says it, it's investigating further and there might be further punishment for Justin Turner. Um, we, we don't know the details of that, and I'm not going to speculate on what that could be or what it should be. Um, but it, it was a really downer way to end. Again, what we talked about at the beginning of the segment was a very fun World Series and a very just World Series in terms of the best team coming away with it. And then Justin Turner, in his, in his own way, is a great story. Uh, and the way he was you know, basically left out to dry by the Mets and had come up through the red system and all that. And... Uh, just changed his swing and became one of the best Dodgers over the last couple of years during their really dominant run. Uh, I understand that there is that inkling to allow him to be out there to celebrate because of that enlarged role he's had with the club. Um, but, you know, these are not normal times. There are people who are canceling weddings. They are pushing off big birthday parties. They're doing things that should be once in a lifetime activities. Uh, they're, they're pushing those things off because of the times we live in. It's great that the Dodgers won the World Series. That feels like a once-in-a-lifetime activity. But he's still going to get the ring. He's still going to have a chance to take pictures with that trophy two weeks from now once he clears all tests. Um, I know he would like to be on the field, but I just it's, it's tough to sanction that type of, um, that type of decision. And we'll, we'll see what, what else is to come of this in the coming days and weeks because it feels like it's not going to be going away for a while. Yeah, um, totally agree, and I think that's very well said. And uh, obviously, a lot of the the baseball stuff um, sort of went by the wayside when that whole situation came up. But we're a baseball podcast, and uh, as we head into the off season, these teams and where they move from here is a big topic of discussion. And we touched on the Rays, and it'll likely be the same group. You know, they could add Wander Franco, the game's top prospect, although we didn't see him at all this year. So I would imagine the chances we see Wander Franco in short order. You know even if everything is back to normal by opening day of 2021, can't imagine. I think we'll probably see him double A, triple A next year. Um, but on the other side, the Dodgers do face more questions. Um, these two teams right now, as they are positioned going into this offseason, what are the biggest things out there from your point of view? Um, yeah, I think for the Dodgers, it's just trying to figure out what they do 
with the Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin. One of the things they did this offseason or this postseason with both of those guys was kind of use them in Franken starter roles. Um, I like that term. Yeah. I, I think it was Lindsay Adler of the athletic was like, what do we like call that. these? Because they were starters for sure, but they were also kind of acting as relievers and openers with the way they were going. I mean, uh, Gonsolin only pitched, you know, and inning in two thirds in game six and, he was doing okay. He gave up the homer to Randy Arena, and he allowed five base runners with three hits and two walks. But um, maybe normally a starter gets to work through that. He didn't get a chance to do that. And Dustin May uh, also was working on short leashes during his time in the postseason. So what do they do with those guys? Do those guys become the number three and number four starter? And, and Julio Arias, who became almost an elite reliever, basically, he's he has starting potential as well. So do they roll with Kershaw, Bueller? May, Gonsolin, and Urias as their rotation next year? Do they, you know, try to figure something else out? That, that's going to be really fascinating for me to watch. David Price is also supposed to come back. He opted out of 2020. Uh, he will be returning for 2021 if, if all goes well. So uh, going to be really fascinated to see how they figure out those roles for, for their pitchers because on the offensive side, most of the big names are coming back. Uh, Corey Seager, is going into his last year before free agency. Gavin Lux is still around. I feel like I, I still need to remind a lot of people about that. It, it was really downer of a year for him, um, getting a late start to summer camp and then being left off the opening day roster and then being left off many of the postseason rosters as well. Is he a shortstop? Is he a second baseman? They're going to have to figure that out. But maybe, just maybe, you know, if Corey Seager either takes a downturn or they decide – listen, we're going to let you go sign elsewhere. And Gavin Lux is ready for shortstop. Maybe he gets a longer look next year as an audition. It's going to be fascinating to see how that works uh, for the Rays. I mean, it, it's going to be, how do you fit these next, this next wave? Uh, that's never been an issue for them. Whenever you think like, Oh, they're, they're pretty full. They're, I don't know how this is going to work. Like they, they find spots. So Juan or Franco, you might say, well, Willie Adamas is their shortstop. And he used to be a top prospect. He's, been there for a while. I know he had his struggles this postseason, getting the final out of the World Series. That that must sting. But uh, Willie Adams is a decent shortstop. But you know, Wander Franco is coming up, and he's a much better prospect than Willie Adams ever was. So does Adams move? Does Franco move? I mean, how how does that going to go? Are we going to look at a new Brandon Lau situation? Um, Brent Honeywell Jr. seems to be healthy at the end of the year. He was part of the taxi squad. I would love to see him be healthy for all of 2021. They're going to have to figure out a spot for him. They're going to potentially lose Charlie Morton. Uh, he's a free agent this year. Or no, excuse me. He has one le year left on his deal. Um, but uh, he's been kind of hedging on whether he's going to return or not. So we'll, we'll see how that's going to go. Uh, yeah, it's just going to be really fascinating to see what the Rays do with this farm system. And knowing that so many good guys are coming up, I didn't even mention Vidal Brujan. Uh, he was also a member of the taxi squad. He's knocking on the door. Brendan McKay missed all of this year uh, due to injuries and surgery. Uh, what is he going to be like when he comes back? Because I, I know they would have loved to have used him either in an opener or starter or even relief role um, instead of relief, using some of the other arms that they did. So, yeah, the raise of the big question is what are they going to do when the their prospects are ready, but I'm not worried about that. They will answer that in due time. So congratulations again 
to the Los Angeles Dodgers, who uh, were recording on Wednesday night, as we uh, usually do. Kenley Jansen just tweeted a picture of himself with a World Series trophy on a plane. So I guess they're letting him out of Dallas. Uh, the uh, story is apparently just Justin Turner and his wife are not allowed to leave, which um, it's not really how viruses work. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully everybody's OK in that situation, because especially somebody like Kenley Jansen, a uh, guy who's dealt with a heart issue in his career. And, um, you know, you've got a, an owner, a part owner who's, uh, you know, dealt with HIV and Magic Johnson and a, a cancer survivor as your manager. And um, just a, it's a, a reminder for all of us to be careful, be smart, wash your hands, keep your distance. We do not have a vaccine yet. We do not have this thing under control, as was so very uh, eloquently confirmed to all of us this week, uh, that there are people in positions of power who don't even really care about controlling it anymore. Please just keep being smart. The holidays are coming up. Uh, this is a tough time of year, regardless for a lot of people. And uh, it's just important for all of us to, to look out for each other, which is something that I don't feel like we've really done very well at all. Um, but that's a soapbox for a different time. So uh, we'll wrap up this uh, first segment of the show before the show. Coming up, Sam, tell us about our uh, our interview segment for this week. Yeah, so this is, as I mentioned before, this is a discussion with Travis Barbary, uh, who is meant to be the AAA Oklahoma City manager this year. Unfortunately, we didn't have a Pacific Coast League season. Um, so that means he actually got to work with a lot of players out of the alternate site at USC. We get into that, what it was like to do that. And also he's been in this organization since 1994. Um, so he has some stories about what it's like, you know, working in the player development department now compared to what it was like coming up uh, when he was signed as a catcher. I'll let him tell that story here in a little bit, but um, yeah, the, really excited. We got him because it, it's the perfect encapsulation encapsulation, excuse me, of where the Dodgers used to be, where they are now, how they got there, and what could be coming next. So this is me talking to Travis Barker. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Well, we're very pleased this week uh, to be joined on the show before the show uh, by Oklahoma City manager and a guy who is at Dodgers Alternate uh, training site this year at USC, uh, Travis Barbary. He's been in the Dodger system for a long time, and um, this is a definitely a special time to be a part of the Dodger system. But Travis, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks so much. And and as I mentioned, you know, you have a kind of lengthy history with the Dodgers. Kind of trace a, that history through the system. You've had multiple roles, as we said. Your most recent was manager of AAA Oklahoma City. Obviously. There was no PCL season this year, so you were working out of the alt site. But how far back do you go with the Dodgers and take us through that journey? 
Yeah, my uh, first uh, experience with the Dodgers, uh, 1994, I signed as a free agent. Um, my former junior college coach, Lon Joyce, had began scouting with the Dodgers in 1992, and um, he called me uh, before spring training of uh, 94 and uh, said they needed some catchers. Uh, basically, I was known as a 9 guy. They didn't have enough catchers to get through spring training, and so he called and asked if I'd be interested in going. Um, I had played independent ball the year before, and, of course, I jumped at the opportunity and uh, didn't really know what to expect, got down there, and kind of was under the impression that, you know, once spring training was over that I'd probably get sent home, and um, the fortune would have it. Uh, they needed me to stay, went through extended spring training, and uh, ended up going to Great Falls, Montana, um, uh, in the Pioneer League. And... Uh, not long after, uh, they made me a player coach, uh, which means I wasn't a very good player. So they <laughs> wanted me to start coaching, um, and, uh, was a player coach for a couple of years in Savannah, uh, in the South Atlantic league. And, uh, following that spent four years as the bullpen catcher in LA and then, uh, got into managing, uh, managed a couple of years in rookie ball, a couple of years in low way, and then, uh, spent the next 13 years as the catching coordinator and, um, was asked uh, following the 2018 season um, if I'd be interested in managing uh, the AAA team when Bill Hasselman stepped down uh, to do some other things. And uh, it was perfect timing for me, uh, for my family, just uh, with our kids growing up and uh, kind of doing their own thing. And um, my wife was excited about the opportunity, so decided to do that. And so it's been 26 uh, awesome years in the organization, and uh, last night was uh, a special time for a lot of people in the organization. Um, I was glad to have all the family home last night to watch the game and enjoy it together. Yeah, and we're speaking here Wednesday, just so our listeners know. So this is one day after game six. Obviously, a lot of those memories still fresh here. But uh, as you mentioned, getting that start getting signed as a free agent in 94. The team was six years removed from a World Series title at that point. A lot of time has passed since then until they got their next one here in 2020. From a player development standpoint, as somebody who has, as you mentioned, deep roots in this system, both as a player, coach, coordinator, now manager, um, what was it like to just watch that game, knowing so many of those guys came up through the system? A lot of them played for you at OKC last year. Uh, you know, Some of them were at the alt site this year. Just what was it like to watch that game at home? You know, really, it was kind of surreal um, just seeing how many guys on that field last night have come up through our system. Um, just the special uh, time in our organization, uh, the way we've been able to do things, um, the way that the front office has put together the roster and uh, the importance of the scouting and the player development. And, you know, you kind of have to pinch yourself sometimes when you're watching guys that you've been a part of their development for so many years, uh, finally culminating in a World Series championship. It's just, uh, it was hard to describe, to be honest. I really didn't know what to feel other than just being excited to see all the hard work for those guys pay off and, uh, you know, um, winning the World Series after so many years of just a special, special night. And was there anybody you were maybe most proud of, somebody you either worked with for a long time or saw somebody grow from – maybe a middling prospect to all of a sudden a World Series champion. Like, who were you thinking of most when that final out was recorded? Honestly, uh, Clayton Kershaw. Um, just what he's meant to this organization and 
um, seeing him from the time that he came into our system uh, years ago and um, what he's meant to our organization, uh, the face of the franchise, and um, arguably one of the best pitchers of all time. Um, and just, uh, I know that had to be just a huge um, moment of joy for him to be able to celebrate. And uh, I think everybody, if you ask the, the guys on the team who they were most happy for, it would be Clayton and just what he's meant to this organization. Um, Kenley Jansen, you know, obviously he was a catcher. Uh, got to spend a lot of time with him um, early on uh, when I was coordinating and developed that relationship with him. And obviously he transitioned into a pitcher and um, has been around for so long in this organization. And But there's so many guys that you're happy for. Obviously guys that uh, I had on the club in OKC last year, and them uh, be a part of that but yeah for me just watching Clayton and just the joy on his face and his body language and like just the sense of accomplishment for him uh, was pretty special yeah I don't think you're alone in that moment being happy for him uh, and, and given all, all this experience you've had one of the things that stood out to me the last couple of years with the Dodgers is that they are they are able to go get a Mookie Betts. They are able to make those trades and take on money. But also the player development system over the last couple of years has really been one of the standout systems in baseball and turning guys into legitimate prospects. What do you feel like has been the secret or not not necessarily secret, but um, what, what has been behind the success of the Dodgers player development the last couple of years? How would you describe the philosophy to success? Well, honestly, I think it starts with our scouting department. Um, they're able to identify the types of players that we value, um, and we get those guys in the system and uh, just try to help them be the best versions of themselves. I think we allow them to be who they are. Um, we have the information. We have the technology. We have the resources to pour into these guys and um, really focus on each player as an individual. Um, obviously we have the philosophy as an organization on what we believe, but I feel like we were able to take each individual and apply to them what works best instead of using a cookie cutter approach for everybody. And, uh, but no doubt it starts with the scouts. Um, they spend a ton of time identifying the types of guys that we want, um, get them into the system and we just pour into them as best we can. And, um, it's just been a, a great uh, run for this organization um, over the last several years. The the talent that we get into the system and um, the coaches that we have in player development, the instructors we have in player development, and uh, just the amount of time we get to spend with these guys and the resources that we have to pour into them. Yeah, and, and speaking of those resources, how do you feel like things have grown since you first entered the system, as you say, as a 911 catcher? Uh, you know, what, what have the, been the changes, not just in the game, but in the way the Dodgers treat the minor leagues and their prospects and their play, player development pipeline? Well, there's so many things. Like uh, the resources are endless, um, whether it's from uh, the strength and conditioning component, the nutrition, um, the things that we allow guys to do um, as far as uh, giving them um, access to the technology, uh, whether it be motion capture type stuff, Rapsodo, um, uh, Edgertronics. Like if there's a thing that we feel like is going to help us as an organization and player development, 
And if you have an idea, the one thing that I'll say is they'll let you try whatever you feel like is going to help our organization get better if it makes sense. Um, the amount of people that they have brought in, uh, whether it's adding extra staff to each affiliate to give more guys individual time uh, to help in their development, our research and development people, um, the people that they've brought in uh, to help us understand how the body works uh, as far as maybe pitching or hitting or catching or infield. Like, it's just amazing um, to me what Andrew Friedman in the front office has done as far as providing the resources to not only the players but to the coaches to help us learn how to coach better. Um, and if we're coaching better, obviously the players are going to benefit from that. Um, but yeah, if you have a, an idea and it makes sense, it's, they let you go all in with it. And it's just an incredible, um, place to be right now. The Dodge organization, I feel like is, uh, the best place to be. Um, I know every organization thinks highly of themselves, but I would, uh, I'm just so thankful to be a part of something that's so special right now. And, you know, every year you go into spring training, you feel like you have an opportunity to, to do what we did last night and that's to win a world series. And speaking of, if you have an idea, they allow you to take it and run with it using the resources that you have. Can you think of a specific example of that, either from maybe this year at the alt site or, or last year with Oklahoma City, uh, where that was really put into practice? Well, the one thing I feel like has really benefited us, like, you know, we put um, what we um, R&D coaches at each affiliate, you know, guys that can take information um off of uh, the computer, off of uh, TrackMan, off of Rapsodo, off of Edgertronics, and they allow somebody like myself who is not as tech-savvy, um, they break down the information, they give it to me, they give it to the strength coaches, they give it to the position coach, they give it um, to anybody who is part of that player's development, and we come up with a plan as a group. And I feel like, for me... Uh, it's been a huge benefit because it's not just relying on one person to help get the job done. It's a, it's a collaborative effort uh, among the group. And I think we do as good a job as anybody um, of taking everybody that's involved in the development of that player, putting our heads together and coming up with a plan um, to help that player get better. So there's so many different things. It's just, uh, I just think the collaborative effort um, is, is a big deal for us. And going back to your experience as a catching coordinator, uh, two big pieces of, of this Dodger team were Will Smith and Austin Barnes. Will Smith coming up as a draft pick, Austin Barnes acquired uh, from outside the organization, but spent a little bit of time at OKC and, and got to work with you a little bit um, as a catcher. Just talk about their growth and, and what allowed them to become a really exciting tandem uh, behind the plate, both being able to work defensively and as DHs, uh, flipping between those two spots. You know, wh what do you remember about where they were in the minors and where they got to as now World Series catchers? Well, you know, first of all, I just want to commend Austin Barnes. Like, I texted him last night after the game. Like, what he went through last year was very humbling for him. Um, you know, having played for us in the two previous World Series and being a big part of where they were, uh, to being sent to Oklahoma City. Um, and, you know, we had some really good talks last year about, you know, just continuing to figure out, you know, how to get back to where he was before. Um, it was a tough time for him. And, you know, just texting him after the game last night, how proud I was of him for, like, sticking to it. 
Um, he's such an incredible competitor and, um, he was such a huge part of what happened this year and to see him have the success he did this year and be such a big part of that. Like I felt so happy for him. Um, you know, his relationship with Will is outstanding. Uh, they work well together. They pull for each other. Um, and as far as Will, you know, obviously coming up to our system as a first round draft pick, you know, he's a guy that you felt early on had a chance to be a very, very defensive player. Um, I don't think I've expected to see the offensive production that he's put um, at this point in time in his career, but like his last year defensively after a brief stint in AAA in 2018, like the year he had last year and the numbers he put up. And then when he went to LA, the numbers he put up and continued to do that this year, like, I don't know if anybody could have foreseen that this early in his career, but it's been amazing just to watch him. And like I said, those two guys work so well together. Their relationship's great. Um, it's a, it's a good tandem to have for sure. And, and one other catcher I want to touch on real quick, uh, Kiebert Ruiz didn't get on the world series roster was kind of part of that taxi squad. I think he got in one postseason roster as a third catcher, but was taken off after mm -hmm. that. You have a, a personal relationship with him. He's stayed with your family in the past. You guys have really taken mm -hmm. him in. Uh, what did you see from him both at the alt site this year and just getting him prepared to be a guy who played a very brief time in the major leagues? Um, what did you see from mm -hmm. his development in 2020? Well, I think the biggest thing for me, and I think everybody saw it right away when we came back uh, after quarantine um, and we were at USC, uh, was the development of his ability to hit the ball out of the ballpark. Um, he's always been a good basketball uh, type hitter, uh, very low punch out rate, um, didn't walk a lot, but he doesn't swing and miss. Um, but sometimes that would get him in trouble because he is so good with the bat to ball skill. Um, a lot of ground balls to the pull side. And the one thing that jumped off the page like right away when we got back to, uh, to work um, and spring training 2.0 and the alternate site, he was hitting a lot of balls over the fence in our inner squads, um, a lot less ground balls to the pull side. And I know he did a lot of work um, with Brownie and, and Robert uh, at CBR, I think, as the as things started to open back up and really kind of revamped his lower half and his swing. And uh, it just got him more consistent in getting them on the air and hitting for power. And um, it was funny because the day that he was going to debut, um, I talked to a reporter briefly before the game, and he asked me the same question. I'm like, the, his ability to hit the ball out of the park is real now. And, of course, his first at-bat uh, in Anaheim, he, he hit a home run. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, offensively, it's just I think he's understanding that um, just because he can hit every pitch that they throw up there doesn't necessarily mean that he has to try and hit every pitch they throw up there. Like, I think he was more selective, um, understanding his swing better, and uh, just driving the ball with more authority. Hmm. All right, well, we've kind of touched on this so far, but you have a little bit of hindsight now. It's been a couple weeks since the regular season ended and things wrapped up at USC. Uh, take us through what the alt site was like, just going through that far from a regular minor league season, obviously, um, far from a regular situation by any means. But what, what was the day in and day out like there, and how are you going to remember uh, that unique, hopefully unique, hopefully we don't have to do that again, but that unique time in baseball. Yeah, it was definitely different. Um, I don't think anybody was sure what it was going to look like. 
uh, at the beginning. Um, obviously, um, a lot of protocols that we had to stick to, um, the testing every other day, um, basically to and from the hotel and, and nothing more than that. Um, but it was kind of like an instructional league setting early on, uh, guys just getting their work in. And, uh, then we started having a lot more of the simulated games. Um, but even that became a grind for those guys because you're seeing the same guys every day. Uh, there's a mix of, you know, double A, triple A guys who might end up going up. Um, and then we had some of our drafted guys from 2020 that were there, you know, some young pitchers, position player. And um, those guys were like trying to make up innings that they missed because we didn't have a season. Uh, so you had a wide range of uh, experience there. And then you had guys that uh, maybe the big league team was going on the road for a couple of days and a pitcher that wasn't going to make the trip needed to throw a pin or throw a live BP. So it was constantly changing from day to day what was going on. And um, even after maybe an inner squad that ended at two o'clock, a couple of guys would jump in their car and drive to Dodger Stadium and get live at bats off of a pitcher with the big league club that needed to throw. And, you know, when the team went on the road, they were obviously going to take guys with them from the taxi squad. And so then we were shorthanded as far as bodies go. So you had coaches playing positions on defense during inner squads. You know, I'm catching bullpens because we were short of catchers when they went on the road. Um, so, yeah, I think guys did a great job of being flexible. Um, nobody complained about it. Uh, obviously, um, it got to be a grind because, like I said, you're seeing the same guys every day as far as pitchers, hitters. Um, but I will say the guys made the most of it. The staff that we had out there was great. The energy was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, hopefully we don't have to go through that again and we can have real baseball next year. Hmm. And for all intents and purposes, it was held behind closed doors. So, uh, you know, we don't get these minor league stats of, of seeing guys grow and, and you touched on Ruiz's right. power made a jump this year. I, I talked to Cody Hosey a couple weeks ago and after Gavin Lux mm -hmm. made comments that he seemed to be spraying the ball over the park. Who else is somebody you feel like stood out who would have, been maybe a breakout prospect this year if they had been able to go to a Tulsa or a Rancho, Great Lakes, Oklahoma City, wherever. Um, who is somebody you feel like stood out behind closed doors? Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's the thing that was actually good for me being able to be at the alternate site because we did have some younger players like a Cody Hosey um, that maybe I wouldn't have gotten to see as much uh, because they wouldn't have been with me until a couple of years from now. Uh, so it helped me uh, get to know them. Um, see what they were about. Cody, I think Gavin Lux is right on. This dude can really hit, uh, can really defend at third base, um, slide him over to short. Uh, very impressed with him. And another guy, like, right out, uh, right off the bat, like, that stood out was uh, Mike Bush. Uh, um, Mike, did I say that right? Um, yeah, yeah, Mike Bush. Bush, Mike Bush, yeah. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking of the old Mike Bush we had here years ago. But, yeah, Michael Bush <laughs> out of UNC. Uh, just the, the plate discipline that he showed, um, his bat-to-ball skills, his ability to drive the ball. Um, spent a ton of time working at second base to improve his defense and made huge strides defensively uh, just because he was able to get the reps in uh, on a daily basis, kind of like an instruction league setting early in the mornings, getting his work in um, and having guys like Sean Larkin, our infield coordinator, Jose Biscay, you know, they're working with him, Clayton McCullough. 
Um, so he's getting a lot of one-on-one attention. Uh, but yeah, his ability to, to hit, um, really, really impressive. Um, some pitching guys, uh, our newly, uh, drafted guy, um, out of Louisville, uh, Bobby Miller, very impressive arm, a big, strong kid who, uh, you know, early on, you know, he's facing guys in these inner squads who have a lot of more experience Some guys that were triple A guys, big league guys. And, uh, I think it kind of woke him up a little bit facing guys who were a little bit more experienced. Uh, but he made adjustments uh, after a couple of outings in those inner squads. And there were days that he would go out there facing these more experienced hitters and dominate them. And, uh, you know, so hats off to him for, like, making the adjustment and uh, making the most of the opportunity. But, um, yeah, it was a unique time um, getting to spend time around guys that maybe I wouldn't spend time around with a whole lot until a couple of years down the road. So it was good for me to get to know some of those younger players. Hmm. And uh, we'll end on a couple quick ones, but one of the biggest stories to come out of game six were some of the managerial decisions. And that was true of all mm-hmm. of the World Series. I'm not going to ask you to what would you have done with Blake Snell, but as a right. guy watching at home as a former manager, what do you miss most about managing, being in the dugout, being in that game situation? And is there any part of you that's sitting there watching a game thinking like this is what I would do right now? Or do, are you able to shut that off when you're watching from home? No, I don't think you can ever shut it off. You're always trying to think along with what's happening during the game. And, you know, it was funny. My oldest son and I um, were sitting there talking through the game as certain situations would come up. And I would actually ask him, you know, hey, what are you going to do right here? Um, You know, three and one, one out, are you going to start the runner? Uh, You know, are you going to play your infield in here? Are you going on contact? And, like, seeing how quick he can answer the question because you're trying to think ahead, think ahead of what you're going to do before it happens. Um, so yeah, I don't think you can ever turn that off. You're always watching it, uh, from that perspective as a, as a manager or coach and, um, just trying to see like if what you would do matches up with what's actually going to happen. So, um, yeah, I don't think that that ever goes away. And we'll end on this one, going back to when you were first signed back then in 94, this is the first time that we can officially say this, the Dodgers are a world series organization. What do you feel like changes about the organization or has anything changed? Uh, because now that commissioner's trophy is, you know, belongs to the entire Los Angeles organization. Um, I just think like the amount of effort, the amount of time, um, the amount of resources that have gone into this. Um, and like I said, there's been some people around for a long time that have been waiting for this. And uh, for me, after the game last night, just kind of taking it all in and watching the guys in the post-game interviews, um, I think the one thing that I take away from all this, obviously, is thankful that we were able to accomplish it. But I think we're set up to do this for a long time. Um, What Andrew Friedman has put together in the front office, uh, I think they've put us in a position to be successful for a long time. Um, I don't feel like it's, you know, we won a series and it's going to be another 30 years. I don't think that's what it is. I think uh, we're going to have multiple opportunities to do this over the next several years. And um, they've set us up to be successful for years to come. Well, it certainly feels like it uh, from somebody outside the organization. So I can imagine what it feels like somebody inside uh, the organization as well. Well, Travis Barbary, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time, especially one day after 
uh, big World Series win for the Dodgers. Uh, enjoy the, the start, the official start now of the uh, offseason down there in South Carolina. I'm sure we'll catch you down the line. All right, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. See, this is the problem when Tyler isn't here. Tyler's gotten very good at the transitions and intros, and I am not that. So anyways, Ben is here. Hi, Ben. How are you? Hello, Sam. Good to talk to you. And uh, missing Tyler and his warm, comforting presence already. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to drag me later for this. He got very upset last time when we said we we spread gospel amongst ourselves about him. Um, So we're going to keep that off mic again this time. But uh, yeah, Ben, just, uh, you know, how... How are things going with you? We're, we're just kind of officially now in, in baseball offseason mode. Um, this is going to be a very interesting offseason for many reasons. But, um, yeah, how, how are things going here for you as, as we get into late October, early November? Yeah, I mean, it's funny to think. Uh, on one hand, we've been dealing with an offseason since basically a year ago around this time in minor league baseball. But now we are into what is the most official portion of the offseason, as we hope for you know, normalcy in 2021. Um, yeah, I think for me, and I think a lot of us at MILB.com, we've just, you know, game of adjustments to use a cliche. So kind of just staying in my own world and uh, use another cliche, you know, focusing on what I can focus on, controlling what I can control. So I feel like I'm in a, in a pretty good rhythm. And uh, yeah, weird to think late October, it's an off season by any metric right now. Um, traditionally a pretty slow time of the year, but I think because we've had so much time to adjust to things being a little slower, it's also conversely maybe not as slow as it otherwise would be because we already got our uh, you know off-season sea legs underneath us and uh, are ready to just keep on cruising, keep on moving, and you know keep on pumping out the good stuff even under these very uh, strange, adverse, anomalous circumstances. Yeah, and speaking of the good stuff, you you came out with a story this week, um, you know, as part of your weekly features about the Black Play-by-Play Broadcaster Grant and Scholarship Fund. We had Adam Giardino on the show when he first started this uh, to touch base on that. You did a story expanding on that a little bit a couple months ago as well. Um, now you you wrote up a, a little bit of an update on how things are going there. They now have nonprofit status. Um, they've ro- raised a whole bunch of money. What, what can you tell us about this update? Yeah, I mean, I wrote this article because, you know, I think a phenomenon we see a lot, uh, especially on social media, is a good idea comes out. Everyone goes out of their way to praise it. And uh, then sometimes, you know, I think it kind of falls by the wayside later and people forget that it exists or the initial optimism for the good cause in the first place just kind of, you know, it never reaches its potential and kind of peters it out. So I think it's important when uh, there's a good idea in, you know, in in the world at large, but especially within, uh, you know, the niche that I cover to, you know, to stay at it and provide updates. So that's what I did with this story. You know, it was announced back back in June, the Black Broadcaster Play-By-Play Grant. Um, you know, we did a story about it. As you said, you had its founder, Adam Giardino, on the podcast. He's the uh, broadcaster from the scranton Wilkesbury Rail Riders. And uh, the initial idea was um, basically just to go um, from within his uh, pool of, you know, broadcasting peers and hope to raise enough money to get $3,000 uh, that would be a seasonal grant for an aspiring black broadcaster trying to break into the ranks in minor league baseball, a $500 a month stipend, if you will. So a pretty modest goal, but still a pretty ambitious thing to try with no experience in something like that. But it got a great response, uh, as you may recall, uh, did really well on social media. Within a week, they'd raised $15,000. That number is up to $25,000. So in writing this article, I kind of want to just uh, now four plus months later, 
say, okay, here's where the black play-by-play broadcaster grant is now, and here's what they want to do going forward. Uh, first and foremost, it is a mouthful, but the official name of the initiative now is the Black Broadcaster Play-by-Play Grant and Scholarship Fund, because they did so well in fundraising right out the gate, they could easily provide the grants, the $3,000, uh, for if and when things are normal, we have a normal minor league season, which of course we will at some point. Uh, so that grant will be used um, to help out a black broadcaster uh, in 2021. Uh, and then they added a scholarship program on top of that because the fundraising went so well. Uh, three $1,000 scholarships right now uh, for black students who are in broadcasting or interested in pursuing it. And you know, to do something like that, you just can't announce it. So Adam and his team of volunteers um, you know, they spent, you know, who knows how many hundreds of hours creating a de- database of people to reach out to all around the country in um, college, communications departments, athletic departments, uh, to make sure they got the word out about this scholarship. So the application process for that is still going, and um, it expires, I think, or uh, ends, I think, next month, or November 1st. So uh, they will then be uh, choosing who gets these three $1,000 scholarships. And then on top of that, even if you don't get a scholarship, um, there are 60 uh, current broadcasters who are inter- interested in a mentorship program. So now it is to even be more of a mouthful, the Black Play-by-Play Broadcasters Grant Scholarship and Mentorship Program, where there's uh, established broadcasters all over the country uh, already ready to volunteer their time uh, to be mentors for people looking to break in uh, or who are just starting out their careers. So um, you know, that's why I wrote the article. I just wanted to you know, give a little more publicity uh, kind of uh, people forgot about it back when it was announced in June. I mean, I know a lot has happened in the world since June uh, to re- you know, remind people it exists. And it's just like a really cool initiative to support going forward. And there's still so much more that can be done. And uh, that was uh, in talking to Adam, one of the things he said is, you know, a big part of their to-do list after they raised so much money uh, was to establish themselves with the IRS, uh, you know, officially as a nonprofit, as a 501c3, um, you know, because if you're now doing fundraising and looking to hit up you know, companies and corporations and going for larger entities, uh, you know, you do have to have these official nonprofit statuses in order to get the donations. So, um, you know, there's a, been a lot of work involved. That's really cool. Uh, what's going on so far. There's a six member board of directors uh, for the organization, which includes, uh, you know, two black play-by-play men at the major league level, Rob Ford and Dave Sims. Uh, so getting a lot of people involved, um, having a lot of applicants for the scholarship program, a lot of donations, a lot of mentorship available. available. And it's just a really cool thing uh, to be cliche about it. It's just one guy having an idea uh, in the wake of the season getting canceled. And here we are talking about it in late October with all this has happened. I think it's, you know, inspiring. It's on there. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it's been really cool to see it take off. And, and to piggyback off what you started out as saying is sometimes these things start out and they seem like a good idea for a couple of days and then either they don't get the support or they peter out or, you know, whatever happens to, to see this continue to get strength is awesome and amazing. And the fact that we're still talking about this months after it started and that they are really going to follow through on this, it has been tremendous. Uh, if people want to either get involved with it somehow, either continue to add to the funds coffers or, you know, look for these mentorship opportunities or apply for scholarships or the, you know, the aid itself, how, how do they do that, Ben? Well, you know, check out my article, you know, for self-promotion, you know, that's of course up on the site, milb.com. Uh, the website itself is black, it's blackpxpfund.com. PXP, of course, meaning play-by-play. So you can check out the full website, blackpxpfund.com and uh, check out the parameters of, um, 
you know, applying for the grant for the scholarship, uh, getting involved if you're already in broadcasting in terms of mentorship or things like that, uh, that's a good place to start. And, um, you know, it starts with Adam Giardino who started this, but there's a lot of other people involved and you can see the board of directors and contact uh, other people to contact and, uh, you know, go from there if you're interested in this sort of thing. And of course, they're uh, still soliciting donations and uh, this will just continue to grow. Yeah, and we can't stress that enough that if you are an aspiring broadcaster out there, uh, a black broadcaster who, who could apply for this, please do. Um, we'd love to add your voice to minor league baseball. Uh, you know, a, a more diverse minor league baseball is a better minor league baseball. And uh, really hope th this fund continues to grow from here and, you know, really spreads its wings in 2021. But this is a really great start in 2020. Uh, ben, on to your next story. You've done two of these so far. This will be your third. Looking back at the promos of the decade. We talked about 2010 and 2011. Now let's talk about 2012. You start out your story, uh, which is coming out today on Thursday when people listen to this, about two kind of unique home run derbies, one of which in Charleston isn't that unique anymore because it's been borrowed by other organizations and other leagues, which is uh, a sign of just how successful it was in 2012, but also one in Reading that I don't think has been done again. What can you tell us about these? Yeah, you know, as we've been talking about these year-by-year -year promo reviews, it's interesting to look back and see the things we th that were trends at the time, things we thought might become huge trends and didn't. You know, uh, last week we were talking about how in 2011, um, you know, the Fort Wayne Tin Caps had to uh, give everyone 3D glasses and uh, and it seemed, uh, and, and then you could watch 3D entertainment on the video board and it seemed like that's going to become a big thing and real common as part of the game day experience. And we don't really see that anymore. Uh, likewise, we don't really see these crazy home run derbies as much as I might have thought we would going back to 2012. Uh, they started in 2011. Um, you know, the Quad Cities River Bandits had a crazy home run derby with targets on the field, like a dunk tank and beer kegs and whatnot. So, you know, teams, I think, were picking up on that energy, started to think more and more outside the box on home run derbies. Um, you know, kind of along those lines, the Redding, they were just the Redding Phillies back then. Now they're the fighting Phils. But the Redding Phillies did this crazy, and you may recall it going viral at the time back in 2012, a much more innocent uh, era of, of uh, human history. But um, the Redding Phillies for the Eastern League All-Star Game just did this thing, this crazy home run derby with – you know, food stations on the field. And uh, I mean, what was going on there? They had uh, like musical performances, an intern in a crane with like targets to hit, um, you know, a dunk tank as well, just all sorts of, uh, you know, crazy things going on in Reading. And then uh, even more viral and even more unique, the Charleston River Dogs hosting the South Atlantic League All-Star Game in 2012. They moved their home run derby from the ballpark to the deck of a decommissioned aircraft carrier and uh, participants in the home run derby hit um, home runs from the deck of this aircraft character, uh, carrier, uh, the USS Yorktown, uh, and they hit them into the ocean, the home runs into the ocean, where they were then retrieved, of course, by volunteers on jet skis. And for some reason, I've always loved the phrase volunteers on jet skis. And uh, this was the first minor league baseball promotion I, I'm aware of that utilized volunteers on jet skis to pick baseballs out of the ocean after home run derby participants hit them into the ocean from the deck of a decommissioned uh, aircraft carrier. So there you go. Those are two, two big ones in 2012. And it's funny just seeing how some of these other ones have aged. Like the Lake Elsinore Storm had a post-game mass T-bowing, uh, which meant a very not a very different thing in 2012, but it was like honoring a football player. And now here we are in 2020. It would be honoring a Mets 
minor leaguer. Uh, it's just funny how the world works out in that way. And uh, the, the other one that stands out to me is the Arkansas Travelers Luke Ben Mill growth chart, um, which is sad now because he he's sadly passed away. But we used to have a growth chart of him in our office, did we not? I don't think it was Luke Van Mill. Uh, it was a uh, one that was given away, I think, by the Princeton Rays. I want to say it was like Brett Honeycutt or Brent Honeycutt or uh, oh, I can't remember. I don't think we had the Luke Van Mill one, which I always wanted. Uh, Luke Van Mill, you know, seven foot one, and uh, always wished I could have seen him pitched. And you know, had he was from the Netherlands, you know, really unique story being a Dutch ball player who was over seven feet tall, uh, hung around in the minor leagues for a lot of years. Uh, that growth chart was a great giveaway. Um, and then just uh, about a year and a half ago, he was in some sort of hiking accident and died. So it is, uh, you know, it's a reminder, even these kind of frivolous articles looking back on goofy minor league giveaways, you know, even that can be a bit of a sad exercise. But in a way, you know, in a weird way, I thought that's why I wanted to highlight it, just to say, you know, RIP Loke Van Mill and, and uh, you know, remember that he was just a really notable player in the minor leagues and one that a lot of people remember. Yeah, no, I think that's the the other fascinating thing about this is that you you might look at somebody's baseball reference page and and say or their MILB.com stats page and think like, okay, they spent some years here, they spent some years here, they spent some years here, they never made the majors. Their career is what it is. But when guys spend a decent amount of time in these places, they they leave an impact, and uh, especially when they stand out in the way like Luke Van Mill did. But um, even if it seems like oh they never made the majors, what was their career good for? You know, they that impact is, is certainly worth something and worth remembering, especially now. Uh, the one I'll end on here, Ben, is the Stockton Ports Presidential Seat Cushion Giveaway, which happened in an election year in 2012. We now sit here in an election year in 2020, but fans would have to sit on the face of the presidential candidate they did not like. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, Hey, it's America. It's a free country. <laughs> Do what you will. Um, you know, this was kind of an edgy promotion in 2012 and I can't imagine it being done in 2020 uh, just because things have gotten that, that much more divisive and partisan um, divisive, divisive. I still say divisive without thinking about it, but I think it's divisive anyhow. Either um, way. Yeah. Either way. Um, the Stockton Ports gave away two-sided seat cushions, and on one hand, on, on one end or one side was Obama, and on the other side was Mitt Romney. So the premise was that then you could sit on the face, I guess, in a sign of disrespect of the candidate you did not support. Um, I'm not sure how well the logic works out, because even the side you weren't sitting on would just be then face down on the ground or bleachers or wherever you happen to be sitting. So it uh, it was a very strange thing, but I remember covering it quite a bit in 2012 just because it was so ridiculous. It's the sort of item, I mean, I live in a New York City apartment, as do you. I don't know where I find room for such a things, but those <laughs> are the kind of item that I look back on and I'm kind of like, wow, you know, I, I wish I had, if I lived in a house, I would like to have things just, you know, the total ephemera of, you know, past minor league seasons, things like a 2012 presidential election seat cushion given away by a minor league team in which the premise was to sit on the face of the candidate you do not support. Uh, a lot to unpack there. <laughs> I think we can leave it at that. Yeah, no, I think that's fine. I, I, I agree with you with the idea of if you're sitting on the face of it, that means that person is facing up. So if you were to leave to go get a hot dog, a beer, whatever, it, it would look like you are sitting in a Romney or Obama seat, which means you support that person. Like I, I, that's a, probably a reason why it was left in 2012, but 
I also like envisioning, as you say, like, I don't have enough space for, for minor league ephemera, but maybe if we hoarded some and then opened up an odd shop or a bar when people can go into bars again and just filled it with minor league things, maybe that's the thing we can do here in Brooklyn. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome to have a bar just filled with this kind of stuff all over the place? That would be great. Let's do, let's go into business. Let's talk off air and uh, devise a business plan. Hey, I'm saying, you know, we could find a place down by Coney Island, which is the home of American ephemera and put it right near the home of the Cyclones. I think we've got something here. This is perfect. I love it. I already have a name for it too. Uh, ben and friend. Ben and, wow. <laughs> I mean, we can't call it Ben and Sam's because then it just becomes B- BS, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop. We'll yeah, no, it. we'll work on it. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of time to go, but yeah. as you were saying earlier, you know, you, you sometimes just a simple idea uh, and then you all of a sudden you're creating something that changes the course of the rest of your life. And I think we might look back on this conversation as uh, the moment the rest of our lives changed. Yep. So save this episode, everybody. We got some work to do. And Thanks, sorry, Connor. Tyler, you couldn't have been here for this historic <laughs> moment. But he can drink for free. He can drink. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Catch you next week, Ben. All right. Bye, Sam. We've had a very uh, interesting and long and convoluted pre-interview conversation as we uh, get to this segment of this week's episode of the uh, show before the show. Our minor league rider spotlight, Josh Jackson joins the show. Before we dive into Josh's story that we're going to discuss here momentarily, while I have two of MILB.com's resident New Englanders here, um, I have to ask you both about a thing that came up on minor league baseball Twitter this week. Are you ready? Yes. Not really, because I don't like where this is going, but go ahead. (laughs) Oh, hi, Josh. First. Hi. 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 I'm ready. I'll, I'll listen to your. Okay. So, and this is not my, my standard, I'm going to make funnier accents and yeah, we get it. You didn't win a world series for a million years. You've won like 18 since then. Be quiet. Um, my question is, so as we all know, we discussed last week with Benjamin Hill, the Pawtucket Red Sox moving to Worcester uh, next year, moving from Rhode Island to Massachusetts, but there was a, it's pronounced Worcester, Tyler. Oh, Warchester, Worcester, Worcester sauce. Um, there was a a stink, if you will, on uh, on minor league baseball Twitter that I saw, where some people seemed to be mad about the Woo Sox having gotten the sod for their new stadium from New Jersey, and there were a lot of people saying, "Oh, if only they could have gotten some sod." Can't imagine there's anywhere around here that has good sod. Is New England sod a thing? That's a thing. Um, Sam, do you want <laughs> do you want to handle this one? I mean, it's everybody a... just fast forward your podcast app. Fifty, there's a fifteen second <laughs> yeah, button. 15... Just hit the fifteen second button right now. Hit it about five times. You mean Tyler, talking what... about talking about grass? Isn't that exciting? Is that what you're saying? For, for a special sod edition of. <laughs> Tyler, what you need to understand about New Englanders is that we are very proud people. Wicked like, good sod. Like you could go to Georgia and get a peach and we'd be like, what, we have no peaches here? Like, what, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the we're not necessarily known for sod because actually farming in New England was notoriously difficult because there were so many rocks in the ground. Like okay. my, the house I grew up on was built on a foundation of stones that were found on the property. Huh. So the, the idea that there's like lots it's and lots very, of like, sod. Very Johnny Appleseed yes. sounding. 
it, it, it very much is. Um, you want a peach, you go to Chelmsford. Let me just say <laughs> right now. So uh, it's not really like a, like I was thinking like, oh, is this just one of those things that I was unaware of? Like everybody knows like Idaho has potatoes and Jersey has corn and whatever. Maine like, has potatoes, know. Tyler. No. Uh, <laughs> I was oh, like, say, I don't know, to maybe, Sam's point, maybe. yeah, we're, we're a provincial people. Um, but no way. Are, I've never picked that uh, out about you. <laughs> it's true. I, I'll, I'll uh, concede to that point. Uh, you know, I, and it's true too. I don't actually, I mean, let's take Sam's word for it with Massachusetts. I don't know, but I do know, yeah, um, farming in Maine, potatoes, you know, are a good crop for Maine because, um, <laughs> yeah, the soil is not necessarily like free of, it's not necessarily a place that, you, that you're going to be able to grow anything. Okay. Uh, okay. I remember in terms of baseball, I went like the summer before my freshman year of high school, I played on a, uh, in like a camp for Chevrolet High School. I didn't end up going to Chevrolet High School, um, but my grandmother worked there and I was like, oh, maybe I'll play on their, you know, baseball team or whatever. And they were super proud of the clay on their infield. Okay. And it had been brought up huh. in Florida. Huh. And interesting dude that then and there wasn't like there's clay in westbrook you don't <laughs> westbrook has great clay our clay's not good enough not good enough right. for you right. right right it wasn't that it was like this clay is so good we brought it from florida <laughs> all right i just you know i was very i i had no idea i actually wanted to know um, but I get it. It's just because you people are weird. It's not a, it's not a thing. Proud. We call it proud. Oh, we, proud. Right. That's yeah. what I meant. Proud. That's, to, that's totally what I meant. Um, <laughs> but we do have, uh, two of our resident New Englanders here and, uh, we're very excited to dive into a story with Josh. Thank you all for humoring me. Um, to all the people who just hit the, the 30 seconds ahead button. They're like, man, that took a while humoring you about what? Um, but let's uh, let's get into a story that Josh wrote for the site, uh, which ran earlier, uh, actually technically last week now, on a debut season in a career that would become legendary, and one of those seasons that you look back on and think like, well, yeah, that figures. Uh, Juan Marichal, when he came to the United States before the dawn of his uh, Hall of Fame big league career, a guy who went to the Midwest League and did basically what you would expect Juan Marichal would do uh, to Midwest League hitters. This is a, another fascinating story. And uh, there are a lot of layers to this story that go far beyond just baseball that we're going to get into. But Josh, kind of give us the, the rundown of you went so deep as you always do with the, the historical stories of various uh, sources and, and reading interviews and um, quoting from Juan Marichal's book and that type of stuff. Um, what was kind of, when you went into this story and coming out of it, what were you hoping to learn about the, the dawn of his career and what did you come away with? Oh yeah, that's a great question to start with. The, uh, I can't really remember what it was that made me say, oh, Juan Marichal, but you know, we always are interested in, especially when minor league baseball isn't being written, looking into sort of the, the, the beginnings of careers of great players. And I, I did notice we hadn't written anything about Juan Marichal expressly before. And then you look, so I'm like, okay, well, did he even play in the minors? You know, what, what was his path like? And, you know, you take a look and his path, as you said, was like, oh, 
this is what it looks like when a Hall of Famer plays, <laughs> gets into minor league baseball, breaks into minor league baseball. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of what drove me there. Uh, and what I ended up learning, you know, too, was a lot of the a lot of the social stuff um, that that you sort of alluded to the the off the field stuff. Although there's a lot of on the field stuff about the early evolution of, of his game too. But um, for me, what really did stand out was, you know, you think about a player coming to the United States from the Dominican Republic in in 1958, and there's two things that that sort of enter my mind. Um, the first thing is that. So we're 11 years after, you know, 1947, after Jackie Robinson, um, I, you know, the, to, the, to use a common phrase, broke the color line. And, and so the idea that sort of can implicitly come along with that phrase is that once Jackie Robinson played in the, in the major leagues, um, there were no sort of race or um, ethnic-based challenges for for players that if a player had a certain level of skill then nothing no no sort of prejudice or attitudes or number of other players of color on the big league team that he signed with would keep him in the minors or keep him from being signed and if you read about baseball and baseball history often enough you know that's just not true um so so that was one thing i was interested in and the other thing that I was interested in was, um, you know, that he didn't really have a path to follow. Um, now, obviously, we know it's, it's you know, widely known that uh, the Dominican Republic loves baseball and produces a ton of the world's best baseball players. It's it's a nation that that loves baseball and is probably more united in their love of baseball. I mean, I think I can say definitely more united in their love of baseball than the United States is today. Um, that said, you know, the first player to the first uh, major league baseball um, player to come from the Dominican Republic. It's Ozzy Virgil. I'm trying to look up real quickly. Yeah, he came, he, he, he made his debut at the end of the 1956 season, September 1956. Um, and he wasn't a pitcher like Marichal. But so, you know, two years before Marichal comes to the States is the, is the very first time, um, you know, in, in the modern era that a player from the Dominican Republic plays in major league baseball. So he was definitely a pioneer in that sense, which gets, I think, overlooked um, and forgotten because of how long and how spectacular his career was. We do acknowledge it. I mean, it's widely sort of known, I think, among baseball fans. He's the first Dominican player to, to enter the Hall of Fame, but um, he's one of the first Dominican players in major league baseball, period. And along the way, we, becoming that like the blazing that trail as you mentioned there josh um was getting started in the minors and, and you tell stories of what it was like for him going on that first bus trip from florida up to michigan or michigan city in indiana um, and also what happened when he got there and how he had to stay in a different place than the white players did because you know he was a dark-skinned dominican player uh this was as we were mentioning before we started this call 
this is about a decade after Jackie Robinson, but it's not like Jackie Robinson's arrival on the scene just hand waved away a lot of the racism that was going on in the middle of the 20th century in baseball. Um, what was it like for Marichal when he was getting going? And, and uh, like you say, he didn't have like a Pedro Martinez or or a David Ortiz or another Dominican player to look up to and say and call and be like, how did you deal with this in the lower minors? Um, so going through that prejudice and trying to figure it out on his own, you know, what did you learn about that journey or part of his but, journey? Before I, I uh, before I go any further, I want to um, sort of shout out slash plug the work of uh, Dr. Adrian Burgos, who's a, a history professor um, who I interviewed for this story and who has multiple books that you should check out if you're interested in the story of, of Latin, uh, of, you know, Latinos in general in baseball and um, Latinos in the United States. One of them is called Playing America's Game, Baseball, Latinos and, and the Color Line. It deals with a lot of the sort of issues that, um, um, that you just sort of touched on, Sam. And it was also eye-opening for me to, to, to be able to, to have the great fortune to talk to Dr. Burgos about um, that journey, you know, that, that Marichelle went through in terms of um, adjusting to life in these weird, weird United States where, where we, have, we have such complicated uh, and, and uh, you know, such entrenched racism and, and such ideas about race that to, if you think about it, to an outsider in an era before, you know, before there was, I forget social media, before there was like reliable and accessible broadcast media um, available, it would have just been baffling. Um, I'm gonna, yeah, and also, I mean, the other thing is he's coming from the Dominican Republic where at the time, Rafael Trujillo was, was a dictator with sort of a, um, an iron hold on, on the country and, and was obsessed about sort of what his society looked like. Um, and so I'm gonna read, you know, the quote from Burgos here. He, he's talking about um, one first coming to, to the United States and, and the background that he brought with him. He says, Dominicans, particularly darker skinned Dominicans led a cloistered life because Trujillo was not letting them out. So much of that society was structured around what Trujillo wanted a life to look like. And you come here to the United States, he's saying, um, and have seemingly every opportunity open to you. That's sort of, the, and I'm, I'm break, taking a break from the quote now, that's sort of the, the idea of America, right? Is, is that, you know, it's the, the land of the free and the home of the brave and Jackie Robinson played in the big leagues and um, every opportunity should be open to you, right? But there he is in, in Florida, he's in Sanford, Florida and taking a bus across the South to, to, uh, to Michigan City. And to get back to the quote, um, jumping back into the quote now, and yet, there's Jim Crow and there are cities in the North that have their own particular ways of limiting your opportunities. Um, so, you know, yeah, he, he did have to, he did have to live with, um, with a black family um, rather than sort of stay in the housing that was, that was provided for the team um, when he got to Michigan city in the Midwest league. 
And you know, he's he he wrote in his book that um, that he loved that family, he, and he had a wonderful time being with that family. That they they became friends um, in a lasting and meaningful sort of way. But you know, that's not the that's not sort of the issue under discussion under discussion here. Um, the issue is, you know, he didn't get to stay where the with with his teammates. He didn't get to do what everybody else on his team did. And he's coming, you know, from from a quote unquote cloistered life into the land of, of opportunity. And I don't know, for me, it's just, it, it kind of makes, well, obviously it makes my heart hurt, but it makes my head spin too, to, to kind of think about what that's like as, as a 20 year old um, trying to, you know, just make sense of this country. Um, and all the while, by the way, trying to trying to play baseball trying to make it as a you know as a pitcher in um in the giant system another thing that's so fascinating josh is you talk about the the challenges that a guy would face uh just in that circumstance alone of uh where he is forced to live due to the color of his skin and the the prejudice that he encountered uh because of that that alone would be uh, extraordinarily difficult and would push a lot of guys to the point where they would decide that it just wasn't worth it. But Juan Marshall is also in a circumstance where he doesn't speak the language either. And right. you're not really showing up. And, and there's some great quotes in here from Burgos who um, really kind of nails the, the point home, especially this one. He said, uh, talking about how little communication Marischal was able to have with his family, he said, uh, quote, I asked Juan a couple years back, you left your mom in February. When was the next time you were able to talk to her? He said, September. Basically, I got to call her to let her know I was coming home, that the season's over. And then this is Burgos talking. He said, 50 plus years later, I could sense the way that hung on his shoulders. Um, when you, you know, even nowadays see guys who come over from the DR or from Cuba or Venezuela or Puerto Rico or from Mexico, whatever it is, there is already such a cultural gap just because of that language barrier. How isolating was that for him too? Because Burgos points out, you know, maybe there are a couple of Mexican restaurants in Michigan city, but you know, there's no way he's walking into a place that's a, a Dominican restaurant. He's not getting food from home. He's not calling home and able to talk to his family. That must've been tremendously isolating. For sure. And that's something that he's, he's talked about late, you know, later in his life as well. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't want to minimize what players today go through um, in any way, because I, I still think it's, I it must just be one of the hardest things that we ask pro athletes to do unrelated to their, um, you know, to whatever their, their actual sport is, to whatever their on-field skill is, is asking them to come into, in the United States, you know, minor league cities where there's, I mean, in some places, yes, there, there, there's a large Spanish-speaking population, um, but in a lot of places, no, not really. Um, I still think that, that that's a huge obstacle to go over, but yeah, back then, again, even more challenging, uh, you know, um, the technology just wasn't there. Dr. Burgos, he also, you know, in that conversation, this isn't in the story, but he talked about, um, I forget where exactly, but he had the privilege of seeing a phone bill from the end of Roberto Clemente's first 
major league season. Um, and this was, you know, his major league season. And it was, I think it was like a hundred and something dollars. I, I mean, I have it here. It, the number isn't tremendously important, um, but it was a lot of money to, to not, to, for short, short conversations. I think it was, he said it was like 45 minutes over the course of a, a month of calls to Puerto Rico. Um, you know, and the Dominican Republic, of course, is a, is a different country. It's, so it's um, higher telephone rates. And, and it's just like for a minor leaguer to be able to pay to, to talk to family right. at that time would have just been, you know, impossible, out of the question. You wouldn't think about it, right? You, you would go from, you know, the time you show up in spring training to the time the season's over before you're able to hear the voice of your family and, and, and the people who raised you. And this is like your first time ever away from home. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. So in the face of sort of all of this, let's look at the baseball for, for a second. Yeah. You know, that we've sort of given you the context to understand what he was going through in the face of all of that, he pitches 245 innings. Um, in you know 35 games and 28 of those are starts he has a 187 era he wins 21 games he strikes out 246 in the 245 innings pretty good pretty good that's you know it's like i just um yeah i mean you look at those numbers and and you you raise your eyebrows and you go wow there's a you know there's a great one Hold on to him. Um, it makes it makes sense that the guy who did that became Juan Marichal, that we, you know who we all know. Um, and then you think about everything that he, every aspect of his life that um, that he was immersed in, every second that he wasn't on a ball field for that summer. Um, and I think it just becomes, I don't know, just unbelievably impressive the, you know there's um yeah a shortage of words in describing how how impressive i find a performance like that and in, in the context of uh a 20 year old kid from the dominican republic coming to the united states in 1958 and doing that in the midwest league um he wins the rookie of the year award for for the league and then uh he goes home plays some winter ball and he's named the Rookie of the Year in the Dominican Winter League too, which you know that's that's a bigger deal. Um, and I believe I don't have this right on in front of me either, but I'm fairly confident that Felipe Alou, who he who you know they they're lifelong friends basically, um, played with him on Escogido that year, and was named the Athlete of the Year. But I think, of course. Escojito lost, I think, in the playoffs too. Anybody? Anybody? Uh, Estrellas, Orientales. No, no, to their, to their. Lise. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Be great. Be great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Estrellas for anybody who's not a not boned up on uh, Dominican Republic baseball, they're the pre 2016 Cubs. Basically, uh, they <laughs> they never win. They've made the finals a lot, and they still never win. Um, but Lise is yeah, kind of one of the other uh, legendary teams. Lise is, 
basically the dynasty. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that really stands out, Josh, in this story that amazed me, and it's kind of a, a quick thing. If you're if you're not reading the story real closely, you might miss it. But uh, this is not a, a Juan Marichal who had either the leg kick that he became known for or the screwball that he became known for in this 1958 season. He was a side armor, and he talked in his autobiography about how he basically threw a sidearm fastball and a sidearm cutter, or a curve, rather, and, like, that was pretty much it. Like, he wasn't even – he was this good, then pretty much turned himself into an entirely different pitcher and was even better somehow. Right, that is that is an interesting other note here that we wouldn't um... – Although, you know, we recognize those numbers and we've, we've all said things like, oh, you see those numbers and you go, oh, there's Juan Marichal. That's, those are Juan Marichalian numbers. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't recognize the 1958 Marichal because, yeah, he doesn't have sort of his trademark stuff in terms of both repertoire and accoutrement to his delivery. His, um, it was next year in um, Sam Dykstra country pitching for Double A Springfield. As it is famously known, yes. Right. Hashtag Sam Dykstra country um, that, you know, his, his manager, Andy Gilbert kind of said to him, well, why don't you try throwing overhand? Let's see what happens when you throw overhand. And what happened was that leg kick. It was, it was kind of a knack, like he, he, he couldn't throw overhand naturally without, you know, um, going into that leg kick. I, you know, I, I stumbled in my speech here because I just got up and tried, stood up like without thinking about it and tried to do it here in my kitchen and almost fell over. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it just, it's like, that's what, that's what his body had him do when he tried to throw overhand. And then of course he, he starts tweaking with, and over, you know, several years starts sort of tweaking what happens with, if I lift the leg this high, what happens if I, you know, hold the foot like this. Do, do I conceal the ball better or improve more of a distraction this way or that way? But yeah, that's a major development of his minor league career for sure is um, the next year in Springfield when, by the way, he's also incredible. Um, I think, yeah, he's he missed the Eastern League strikeout record by 11 um, and had a 2-3-9 ERA with eight shutouts. Um, but yeah, it's that year where he starts throwing overhand and also starts working on a screwball. Um, and then we really get into, you know, here comes one there, Shell. The year after that, he's in the Pacific Coast League for a little bit, and then, you know, he's he's in the Giants, and that's that. Yeah, I, I told Tyler that I was going to take the last question here, but I just wanted – it was going to be about his time in Springfield. So, Josh, you, you nailed it there at the end. Uh, I just want to note that, like all things, this both started – and ended in New England. So there we go. It's true. How was the sod in Springfield at the time? I, yeah, that's what I was wondering. What was the uh, what was the situation there with the? Sod? I'm Both sure transcripts of the sod and tra- up in Springfield could be. A I'm little- sure because it was Springfield sod. It was exquisite. It was the finest sod in all of the Eastern League. I will hear no other arguments. Thank also, you. sorry, to frosty tell sod there in April. <laughs> sorry to tell both of you, but when I hear Springfield. I just think uh, I think of Missouri because of the good and Springfield Cardinals. Why the <laughs> double A Texas Springfield Cardinals, Josh? There's a, there's a Springfield in Missouri. There's a Springfield everywhere, I believe. There's a, there is a Springfield everywhere. I think there's a Springfield in, in every state. I don't think that's actually there's, true. There's a Springfield. There's a whole TV show about the joke. You know, I've heard that, supposedly. <laughs> 
Um, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, I was I was going to tweet this earlier today. I know that I have tweeted it before, but a fun party trick. And since we're not allowed to have parties, you can just do it on Twitter now. You can submit any Simpsons quote from season one through ten to at Josh Jackson MILB on Twitter, and he will know the line that follows from any episode of the only seasons of the Simpsons that are worth watching, which are one through 10. So give I that think, a shot. I think you're over-promising there. <laughs> but, over-promise but, and under, right, under-deliver. Right, I, I think I, I uh, yeah, I, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if, I think if anybody tried to stump me, they'd stump me. But try, Josh, people. Try, but yeah, try, exactly. try again. Give it a shot. Um, Josh is on Twitter at Josh Jackson MILB. And this story is really fantastic. It goes so deep into, uh, that formative era of Juan Marichal's career. And you can read it right now at MILB.com. Great stuff as always, man. We'll, uh, we'll do it again. All right. Thank you guys for having me. And thank you all for listening out there. Radio. Yes. Did it. Before we wrap up this week's episode of the show before the show, uh, it was Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News who tweeted that fact about Dodgers pitchers, starting pitchers of the postseason, all coming up uh, and playing the entirety of their careers in the system. And so I wanted to uh, make sure that we credited him. Before we get out of here, Sam has our nationwide prospect fact of the week. Yeah, so this week's fun fact um... – I, I was going to bring up that Dodgers one, but Tyler so presciently and correctly brought it up in the first segment. So um, it's because it's such a good fact, it deserved to be up there. I'm going to just bring back bring it back to Randy Ayers Arena. Why not? This is our last technical postseason show, really. So let's just bask in the glory that was Randy Ayers Arena. And th- I'm going to say this knowing full well that this was the longest postseason we've ever had. It was the biggest postseason we've ever had. It's there was every chance that somebody was going to set these postseason records. The fact that it was a guy who was a rookie uh, playing his first year in a new organization just makes it all the more fascinating and adds another layer layer than just saying like, oh yeah, I guess Corey Seager was always going to set records. No, this is Randy Ayers Reina doing this uh, before he even loses his prospect eligibility, which is fascinating. So Ayers Reina set uh, postseason records with 10 homers, 29 hits, and 64 total bases over 20 games. These ones aren't records, I don't think, but I'm going to mention them anyway. He batted 377, had a 442 on base percentage, a slugging percentage of 831, and an OPS of 1.273. Again, this is, you know, he did all this over 20 games. This year during the regular season, he only played 23 games for the Rays. Notably, tested positive for COVID, was delayed in his start to the year, didn't come up. Uh, until the season was basically halfway done. Um, but for him to, to take charge like this and to do it not only on a game's biggest stage, but against the best teams in baseball in the AL and then doing so well against the Dodgers was great for him. Um, Tyler, I'm going to throw this question to you just to kind of round out this discussion. And, and maybe it's a thing we're going to talk about a lot this offseason. I don't know. Uh, but Randy Arizona is, is still a prospect. And for much of the season, he was a fairly middle of the pack raised prospect. I would say there's no doubt he's a top 100 prospect, but like how far would you be willing to go given what he's done so far and what, how we've seen him perform? How far in terms of how high would I rank him top 100? Yeah. Yeah. 
That is a great question because he's number 19 in the Rays organization as noted right now. So the Rays, as of uh, this recording, have how many top 100 prospects in total? I can go uh, do that, but I have to tap dance uh, while I find it. And then once I get there. Okay, so the Rays, as of right now, have this many top 100 prospects, six of them. Wander Franco, number one. Brendan McKay, number 12. Vidal Brujan, number 41 overall. Xavier Edwards, number 67. Shane Boz, number 86. And Shane McClanahan, number 99. Shane McClanahan is the sixth-ranked prospect, obviously, in the organization, which means there are 13 spots in prospect listing uh, format on MLB Pipeline between him and where Randy Arozarena uh, entered this postseason. He's number 19. The guys between them are Brent Honeywell, name that we know very well, uh, Nick Bitsko, who is a, uh, a draft selection just from this year, the 24th overall pick, uh, Joe Ryan, Josh Lowe, Greg Jones, Ronaldo Hernandez, J.J. Goss, Alika Williams, Moises Gomez, Nick Schnell, Taylor Walls, and Kevin Padlow. All of those dudes right now just in the Rays system are between Randy Orozarena and the Rays' lowest-ranked top 100 prospect. So Randy Orozarena is going to blow by all of them. Um, but do I, you know, I don't know if I would put Randy Orozarena in the top 80, you know? Like, I think the his performance was ridiculous – but by the same token, uh, I don't know. Am I crazy in thinking that way? See, I mean, I, he's vaulting 13 prospects just in his own system to crack the top 100. I don't think he's like a top 50 prospect now. But that's the thing, though, is that we talk about all these guys in terms of their ceiling, and nobody right, has ever done right. this. Right, exactly. We're evaluating something that literally has never happened before. Yeah. And so, Randy Rosarena finished the regular season really strong, too. He had an OPS over 1,000, hit seven homers in the regular season, and then another 10 in the postseason. So he had a great stretch, but calling facts facts, he had a great two months of baseball. Um, does that mean that he is going to have a 20-year Hall of Fame career as he has looked for the last two months? Probably not. No. Well, we, do, we don't know. We honestly don't know. I mean, he, I, right. I do think he's made some changes. Um, the bat speed has always been there for him, um, but he's added power because I think he's added elevation. Uh, we even saw during these playoffs, he was hitting every fastball he saw. And then teams adjusted and started pitching him off speed. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's flicking uh, outside sliders over to this into the stands in, in right field. So the, the adjustments he made made me feel pretty confident about it. What I thought was like, the, I don't think you can put him like top five or anything like that. Where, where do I start to feel comfortable with him? And I was like, maybe number 30, that feels right wow. to me because at a certain point, let's number 30 right now is Emerson Hancock, right? Uh, Mariners top pick this year. He was number six overall above him is Marco Luciano, who has only played in short season ball so far those guys both have considerable ceilings themselves, but even then you have to say like, will they ever do anything like this? And I don't know if they will. And I, it would take a serious crash for Randy Arizona to be like, yes, Emerson Hancock had a better, I don't know. It's, it's a very difficult conversation. Um, we is. don't have to do it. I, I, I don't envy yeah, I don't know, the envy guys, the pipeline crew. Yeah. Jonathan Mayo, Jim Callis, Mike Rosenbaum, everybody over over there um, who do tremendous work in doing these rankings. Uh, people like to ask us, what's the difference between us and them? We, we like to f focus a little bit more on the, the micro 
Um, you know, we're talking about day-to-day minor league stuff. We're talking about the business of minor league baseball. We do a lot of different things. They're more on the macro of who are these guys? What is their long-term future? We mix in that as well. But um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I really don't know. It, we've never had to do this before. It's really difficult. I really wish we could have seen more of him, but if we did, then he wouldn't be a rookie or he wouldn't right. be a prospect anymore. Um, and we wouldn't have to talk about this. So the other thing I will note very quickly uh, is that Randy Arizona is 25. So, you know, some of these guys we're talking about still have years ahead of them in terms of growth. Randy Arizona is coming up on the time right now in which a lot of outfielders hit their prime. Um, so he could be really good for the next three years and start to tail off almost naturally like anybody would. And that doesn't say anything about him and his future. It's just like, right. that's, that's how the human body works. That's how athletes work over years and years and years of research. Um, that's the thing we have to consider as well when we talk about his future. So yeah, it, I, I don't envy them in figuring that one out. And it's going to be fascinating to see that discussion and, in the end, you know, rankings have failed Randy Arena before. They could fail him again. We could still be mis, mis or uh, underestimating him when we say, like, no, the, he might not be the best pro, uh, prospect in baseball right now. He could prove us wrong at that. Who knows? It's possible. Um, but, yeah, what a crazy uh... – like we'll never see a postseason like that again. Granted, there are obviously he set so many of these records. He also played way more games than anybody else has ever played in a postseason, and we understand that. But um, still, what a what an insanely impressive last couple of months. He actually just a moment ago uh, tweeted out a thank you to Rays fans in Spanish and in English, and uh, and just such an easy guy to to like and to cheer for this year. Um, and like I said at the at the top of the show, it felt good to feel good about things for a little while, you know. Yeah. And uh, and now the cold, long winter awaits. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, uh, get in touch with us. Podcast at milb.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra milb. I am at Tyler Mond. Please go vote. Do your duty and uh, and let us know if you do. Let us know if this podcast was the thing to push you over the line in voting. We will feel very good about ourselves. Right, Sam? And we will feel very good about you. That's the focus is on exactly. you. And That's the, even better. Yeah, you will be strengthening this democracy. Again, I, I go to the top. I, I know there's a lot of apathy about voting or there has been in the past. Hopefully this year it's changed. The early voting numbers have been fantastic. But um, one thing I always got a kick out of ever since I could start voting in 2008 was you look at the results and just knowing you are one of them, whether it was a, right. a runaway or whether it was close, just knowing my vote is in there somewhere and that is history and that gets to live on is really, really cool. Um, and you know, it, again, if you live in some of these swing states, your vote could very well decide the future of this country, um, which is an awesome power that we don't get to have every day. So Make sure you exercise it. If you have the ballot at home because it's been mailed to you, get it off to a Dropbox or, or uh, some other election facility. If you haven't voted yet, try to vote early. If you're waiting for election day, make sure you get there to your polling place early and stay in line as long as you need. We need your voice. We need your vote. Get out there. That'll do it. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.